Good. Um, so here we are back in our, our series, Stories Jesus Told, looking at the parables. And if you remember last week, looking at the Good Samaritan and, and kind of seeing what Jesus was doing with that and, and really how profound and deep that was. Uh, this week we get to an equally well-known parable that Jesus tells. And right away, I mean, this week as I was studying, it reminded me of an interview that I saw with Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, back in 2014 in New York Times. And he said this, I'm telling you, And if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in because I have earned my place in heaven and it's not even close. Now, now that's absurd. It's absurd to hear out loud somebody say that like as a human being. Um, But it's not that, um, it's not that crazy. It actually makes some sense on one level because our culture, I mean, the narrative that we really just see kind of floating around, And the water that we swim in is that, you know, you work hard, you earn your spot, you climb a ladder, whatever that ladder is, you you just aim for the bullseye of whatever success we've defined. Uh, And as long as at the end your good kind of outweighs your bad, then, you know, you get in. You get eternal life, you get paradise, you get whatever it is, whatever kind of the the treasure at the end of the rainbow is for you. And so it really doesn't, doesn't sound that strange when you start to look at it. The problem, though, is that what we're locked in as a culture is that we don't know what good is. Because when we end up defining what is good, we end up running into issues like, well, how good is good enough, though? I mean, how do, the, how, how do the books balance at the end? What does it mean to have your good outweigh your, your bad? Who gets to define what's good or good enough? What happens when different beliefs and worldviews have differing definitions of good? What happens when there's a conflict of def- defining what is good and what is good enough? Michael Bloomberg can say that in one sentence, but then he's also a guy who says he has a girlfriend in every city. And you're like, oh, okay, well, now we're dealing with morality. We're dealing with value statements. We're dealing with, with a worldview that really underpins all of that. And Michael Bloomberg, as crazy it is, as it is to hear him say that, for many of us, it's not that rare. It's actually very common. It's common for us today to define what is good, what is right, what is true for ourselves, and then go and just, just hit that. Just hit that, the, the bullseye on that target. And Jesus, every single time he talks about goodness, every time he talks about morality, values, ethics, right and wrong, he messes up every human category we could possibly come up with. And he often does it using parables. He uses parables to say like, hey, actually God doesn't grade on a curve. God doesn't deal with your boxes and, che- and have you check them. God doesn't have you present your resume and your CV to see how impressive you are. That, and Jesus comes repeatedly and he, and, he, and he does that so that we don't have fluid definitions and subjective definitions of what is right and wrong and good and true. And now this is a problem that brings us all the way back to the garden. If you remember in the very first pages of scripture, we see that God is the one that, that actually goodness comes from him. That he, he creates, he speaks, and then he says it's good. That is what's good. He gets to define what is good. And then everything goes really bad when humanity decides what is good for themselves. It's like, well, actually, we're going to decide what is good and right and true. We're going to decide what is valuable and what is worth our life and giving our life to. And the problem with that, the problem with sin ultimately, is that we end up chasing a moving target that we can never quite hit. And Michael Bloomberg is just an example of that. So this parable that Jesus tells today, what he's getting at, it's an old word, it's righteous. A word righteous or righteousness, or like Matthew just read, justification. 
These are all really technical terms, and they are kind of like ancient terms, but righteous is a really important term to remember. I mean, you don't hear it today unless it's like from like a SoCal surfer, be like, righteous, man, right? But righteous isn't a term that we kind of like float around day to day, but it's a really important one because in the Old Testament and in the New, righteousness really just means approval. It means acceptance. It means being made right, being deemed right. Something or someone outside of us qualifying us, validating us as right and good and accepted. And this is every single one of us. That's the thing. Like, like we, we look at our culture today and we can have all sorts of different definitions of what is good and what is good enough, but ultimately we're all starving for justification. We're all starving. We're just looking for approval. If only I do X, or if only I achieve Y, then I will be fill in the blank. It's a search for approval. It's a, it's a journey for acceptance, someone to validate us. And Jesus shows us two different people in this parable that are looking for exactly that. They're searching for this justification. They're searching for righteousness. And they go about it two very different ways. All right, so Luke 18. We'll see what Jesus does here. So he told this parable, verse 9 through 10, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That word is worthless, that other people are worthless, but they're, they're not. So two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. Stop there. Notice that Luke gives us the interpretive key before he tells this parable. Tells us right away why Jesus is saying what he's saying. Why Jesus is telling this parable and who he's speaking to. And he says, he tells this to people who trust in themselves. And that look at other people with contempt. See other people as worthless. They have a definition of what makes them right. And other people don't quite make it. They don't meet that. And then he says, so the Pharisee and the tax collector, let me tell you a story. They go up to the temple to pray. Now right away, this is a strange story. These are not two people that you would hear about together going to the temple. In fact, tax collectors wouldn't go to the temple. They weren't allowed at the temple. And they certainly wouldn't go to the temple to pray. So already there's something strange about this story. As Jesus does with his parables, there's always something that he's just kind of alerting us to say, this is about more than what you think it's about. And there would be a daily thing where at 3 p.m. there'd be a daily afternoon sacrifice where the Jewish worshiping community would come to the temple to pray and there would be a sacrifice. But Jesus says a Pharisee and a tax collector went up to pray. That would be like saying like a Supreme Court justice and Charles Manson went to pray, or like Al Capone and a nun went to pray. Like, like there's just nothing about these two cats that, that, that should be in, to, in the same sentence together. They're worlds apart in who they are, what they are, and what they're actually about. And then Jesus goes to give us a little bit more detail about these two different characters. The Pharisee, uh, verse 11. So the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. God... I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, the sexually promiscuous, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. Okay, so here's the Pharisee. He's standing there. And the Pharisees, listen, they get a bad rap in the New Testament often, but they're good guys. Like for all intents and purposes, at a surface level, the Pharisees were really good people. 
They were the most influential Jewish group at the time. They were very respected. They were educated. They would have been kind of like upper socioeconomic bracket. They would have been people whose voices were actually brought in and, and, and really respected. Nicodemus, Paul, both Pharisees, right? So you see the kind of cloth that they were cut from, but we see all sorts of problems here with this Pharisee and his prayer. So you notice first he's standing, but that was the normal posture of prayer, right? If you look at the wailing wall today in Jerusalem, they are standing in front of it praying. That's the normal posture. But notice the only mention of God that he has in his prayer is right at the beginning, and then he moves on to humble brag about himself. That's all he does. Five times he says, I, once he says God. His whole prayer really is just self-justification and a humble brag about how awesome he is. And it's really interesting because his prayer is actually pretty good because he quotes scripture. Like, so he talks about adultery, he talks about being an extortioner, he talks about the unjust. These are all biblical things. These are commands. He's saying, I'm thankful that I'm not like that. But the problem is, it doesn't come from a posture of humility at all. It comes from a posture of pride. He's praying and he's defining what is good and he's defining his own goodness and his own righteousness based on what other people are because he's not. And so he has this horizontal view of righteousness. And notice that he adds a couple things that aren't biblical. This is really interesting because it's very subtle. But you hear him talk about fasting and you hear him talk about giving. And when he says, I fast twice a week, you're like, wow, that's, that's pretty good, right? But scripture only, actually, the Old Testament only calls for fasting once a year. And that was leading up to the Day of Atonement. That was leading up to the Yom Kippur. So he's killing it. Like, he's not just once a year, twice a week. Like, I do extra. I go over and above. Look at my report card, right? And then he says, I give a tithe of everything I have. Everything. Deuteronomy 14 only calls for a tithe of your grain from your crops and your land. But he gives everything. He's a tenth of every, look, look at Look how good I am. So notice that this, this Pharisee isn't just a good guy. He's going over and above. He's going over and above and defining who he is by what he does and what he doesn't do and who he's not like. And if you remember in Matthew 6, when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, you remember he says, don't pray like, and he goes on to describe, it's this guy. <laughs> he's the, don't pray like this guy. This is Jesus, when he starts, before he tells his disciples how to pray, he's like, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't pray like this guy. So what's the problem with his prayer? Well, his goodness, his target, he's justifying himself by what he does and doesn't do, behavior, and who he's not like. And so it becomes this moving target of what is good enough. Who gets to make that call? It's an external definition of goodness. It's an external definition of morality and value. So he's really just saying, God, and he starts there. It's like, that's a good start to a prayer, talking to God. Some people just kind of like meditate and talk to the universe. It's like, okay, good. At least he started with God. But then he goes on to be like, look what I've done. Look at everything I've done, God. Look at this. I deserve, I deserve everything that's coming to me because I've done so many things. Sure, sure. I mean, I'm far from perfect, but at least I'm not that guy. Right? So literally, like, this, is, this is it. This is like you standing in church being like, thank God I'm not like Steve. Right? Like, like so you can see the posture. You see the posture of his heart. Notice what he doesn't pray and notice that what he's not thankful for. He doesn't mention anything that's happening at a deeper heart level. He doesn't mention who he's becoming. He doesn't say, God, thank you that I'm becoming more patient. Thank you that I'm becoming more gentle. 
when criticized. Thank you that I'm becoming more generous because, man, I'm greedy sometimes. Thank you that I'm becoming more selfless and peaceful and less bitter towards people that have hurt me. Notice that that there's nothing in his prayer that actually gets to the deeper level of what really matters, of what actually matters and make us who we are. And the problem with his prayer is that there's always going to be someone better. Always. With this moving target of goodness, with this moving target of righteousness, there's always going to be somebody that is doing more or doing less. There's always going to be someone that we can point to and be like, at least I'm not like them. And that's the problem. So, so family, if we see our sin and our flaws and our weaknesses as external and only external, we will think that good behaviors will fix that problem. We will always be able to find someone else to have contempt for. We will always be able to find someone else that is worth less, according to our definition, so that we deem ourselves worthy. And we have to understand that sin, biblically, is always more than just bad behaviors. It's always more than just avoiding bad things. It's always more than just doing good things and and weighing it out at the end like Michael Bloomberg would want to believe. It's always more than just morals. It's always more than just the right beliefs like Matthew said. It's not just about theology in our minds. Jesus constantly takes what we believe, how we live, and he takes it and says, oh no, those are only the symptoms that point to your heart. Those are the things on the surface that get us to who you are who and what you look to to define what matters and gives you value. So sin at its root is always a self-defined identity. It's always defining ourself and attributing value to things and making an identity out of something that is not God. And we see it from the first pages of scripture and we see it across the pages of history and we see it in our own heart. And it's just classic self-justification. It's classic self-righteousness. It's looking for approval and acceptance and recognition about how great I can be based on what I either avoid or what I accomplish. And our culture is rife with it. Our entire culture is looking for this. We're honored. We're starving for acceptance. We're starving for approval. We're starving for someone to say, I know you and you're fully known and you're fully loved. You're fully accepted. We're starving for it. And the gospel that we have and the gospel that we believe is the only thing that offers that. It's the only thing that truly has someone that is outside of us, that approves us of us, completely despite of what we can accomplish or what we avoid doing. So often when we have to say how right we are or how great we are or how awesome we are, it's usually because we know we're not. You with me on that? Like the ones that are the most kind of humble braggy about themselves often end up being the ones that are really the most insecure. That, that publicly they can have this huge, amazing, amazing persona, this amazing cosmetically airbrushed thing, but privately they're an absolute train wreck or just morally bankrupt. We see it all the time. And that was the Pharisees' problem. And the Pharisees as a people group, they were definitely notorious for this. Notorious for giving the appearance of being champions for justice. Of being champions for righteousness. Yet Jesus constantly hammers them and brings them deeper to show them that that is not the point. So Jesus will say things to the Pharisees like, You blind guides, you sons of hell, you brood of vipers. Meek and mild Jesus, amen? Not. Hypocrites, woe to you, shame on you. They say, shame on you, 
right? Woe to you, Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you clean the outside, but inside you are rotten. And Jesus constantly is doing that to show them that they've actually worked outside in to try to change. And the gospel shows up and Jesus shows up and says, no, 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 but I work inside out. That there's actually an inside out justification. There's an inside out righteousness that is gifted to you. That you are fully known, even in your most bonehead things. Even in the private things that no one else knows, you're fully known and fully loved and fully accepted. Now go and live like it. Radically different. And we're all starving for it. And Jesus constantly comes at it. I ran into 1 Samuel 16 again just to see that, and I just was reminded that the Pharisee forgot about the Bible that he claimed to know so well. And we do this often, don't we? 1 Samuel 16, the Lord says to Samuel, don't look at appearances, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus always does this. Luke 16 Jesus turns to the Pharisees and he says, you are those who justify yourselves before God, but God knows your heart. Now, what does this tell us? Well, this tells us that you are who you truly are when no one else is looking. The discipline that you lack in private, that's who you are. That's your discipline. It's not the discipline you can conjure up when other people are watching. The kind of spouse you are, the kind of friend you are, the kind of person you are, the kind of dedication and devotion that you have to the Lord has nothing to do with what you can conjure up when you're at Citigroup or when you're here right now singing praises. It's what happens when no one else is watching. That's who you are. Why? Well, because that's when our heart comes out. That's who we truly are. What you and I do when no one is looking is what ultimately defines us. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Because the Pharisee didn't want to go there wanted to have the public portrait be who he is. Charles Spurgeon commented on this text, and he said that the Pharisee was too good to be saved. (laughs) I love that. That we can be lost in our goodness. We can be lost in the game of comparison, that at least we're not as bad as so-and-so, or at least we are a better father or a better whatever, fill in the blank, than that person. And then we justify ourselves, so we're like, okay, at least, phew, at least I hit that target. But self-righteousness doesn't require God's righteousness, and therefore we end up not justified at all. And that's the danger of this, and the creep of legalism, and the creep of religion, and the, the creep of this in the Pharisee's heart is what Jesus is drawing our attention to. And he does it by the most shocking second character, the tax collector. And this is where you get like the... Uh, huh? Like in the story, right? Like that, this, is, this is what would happen in the audience. Now listen, he talks about the Pharisee and then he changes and he says, but the tax collector. So already you're like, why is he even there? He doesn't belong there. Standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his chest. He like just hit himself in the chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus turns and he says, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Scandalous story. Every Pharisee, every religious Jew in the crowd would have just been like, then what is the point? Why do I do all of this? Why do I do my devos? Why do I come to the temple to pray? Why do I burn, do all these offerings and come to the altar? And why do I do any of it if that guy is going to go away justified and the Pharisee who did it all doesn't? What is the point? It's very, very scandalous what happens here. You have to understand that the tax collector 
they were the, some of the most hated type of people. They were the people that's like, they smelled different, they looked different, they sounded different. When they're in the room, you knew they didn't belong. You're like, one of these things is not like the other. It's that guy. <laughs> There's nothing about the tax collectors that anybody would have looked at and said, oh yeah, they're justified. They're valuable. That's why the Pharisee can look and be like, this worthless tax collector? Like, like that's actually not even a bad, on human terms, that's not even a bad like qualification of what the tax collector would be like. They were, there was a saying in the first century that they were beasts in human skin. <laughs> Just animals. Because you have to understand that they were traitors. Ethnically, they were Jewish, but they worked for Rome. And so what they did as tax collectors is they would just go make up arbitrary financial rules to skim off the top and steal from their own people. And they would just live large. They'd live the life of luxury and they would just live it up, but on the backs of their own people. They were traitors. They were extortioners. Most of them were adulterers. They were sinners. That's why they're always tax collectors and sinners are put together because they're just one in the same. So think Jewish mobsters and Jewish drug dealers and pimps and extortionists and liars, people who prey on their own people for selfish gain. Those are the worst type of people. Are you with me on that? And in the religious community, they were excluded from the temple. They weren't even allowed. They weren't allowed to come and pray. Their money, if they gave, was rejected and they were actually taken out of the temple because it was dirty money. They weren't allowed to testify in court because they were seen as so untrustworthy. No one knew what a tax collector was capable of next. They're not the people you wanted around. And he knew it. And that's the thing. So if you notice the Pharisee standing right up in the temple, standing by himself, God, thank you that I'm so awesome. Thank you that I'm not like all those lowlifes over there. And notice what it says about the tax collector. The tax collector is standing far off. Now, some commentators say, if you remember back to your diagrams and your flannel graphs from, from Sunday school or in your study Bible, if you remember the temple, there's all sorts of walls and dividing lines, right? There's the, the Jewish court, the, 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 the women court, the Gentile court, and then there was the, 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 the holy place, then the most holy place, right? So there was this kind of like um, spheres of holiness and presence and connection to God. And there was all sorts of rituals that symbolically played that out as we moved towards God, Right? Most commentators would say that this tax collector was probably outside. <laughs> that as the Pharisees walked into the temple courts, they passed this tax collector who's probably on his knees, right? Not even wanting to look up to God, just so ashamed of himself. Not able, just, just like, on again, pounding his chest saying, God, me, not me. Like, I, I, I'm the sinner. Like, I'm not worthy of your mercy. And they would just pass him and be like, what's wrong with that guy? And they'd go in and be like, thank you that I'm so awesome, right? Mm, thank you, I'm not like that guy, Right? So that, that's kind of the picture that we have here. And Jesus paints it very vividly for the crowd. It was very clear he didn't belong and he knew it. So for you, think about the person that if they came in the back door right now, you'd be like, why are they here? And I know for us as a church, that's not strange to us because we'd want all those people in here, amen? But there's always somebody that you'd be like, I don't know what to do with you. I don't know if you belong here. You don't really look like us. I don't like the cut of your jib, whatever that used to mean. I don't know. But it's like, I don't know what you smell different. You look different. You think different. You live different. I don't know what you did last night, but you smell like it, right? All sorts of weirdness there. And the tax collector knew he didn't belong. Now, here's what's really awesome. In the Greek, it's a really awkward, 
awkward Greek sentence, but it's done for emphasis. So I think when Jesus was telling it, it probably came out awkwardly, but he did it to emphasize the point that he is getting at in this parable. The prayer of the tax collector is, oh God, have mercy on me. And it's the definite article, the sinner. Not a sinner. So as as the Pharisee, the Pharisee thanks God that he's not a sinner. Notice that. The tax collector begs for mercy because he knows he's the sinner. Rather than compare himself to other people, he recognizes how how far he falls short from deserving approval, from actually being accepted by God. He knows he's the sinner. The Pharisee thanks God that he's not a sinner like those ones. There's a big difference in posture there. And here's the awkward part in the Greek. When he says, be merciful to me, the be merciful for me is actually a verb form of mercy seat. Okay? So he literally says, be mercy seated towards me. So if you remember anything about your diagrams and your flannel graphs again, if you remember the Ark of the Covenant, go back kind of Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that pure gold box with the two little weird angels on the top that no one really knows how to draw, right? Okay? That cover, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant is called the mercy seat. It's the atonement cover. And why it was significant is because it would be the place where God not only met with the high priest, but that it would be the place where God would make his presence known specifically at certain times during certain rituals. And the tax collector knew knew this. And so his prayer is really significant because he's literally saying to God, he's saying, treat me as someone who has been forgiven and accepted based on what has happened on the mercy seat. You're like, okay, that's, that's an interesting prayer. And for us as Gentiles in 2020, we have no idea what he's talking about. Okay, so real quick, a drive-by of what this is. He's nodding way back to the atonement cover, the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And if you remember the Ark, inside the Ark, there was one thing, well, two things, two pieces that are one thing, right? The Ten Commandments. Okay, the law of Moses was in the Ark of the Covenant. And that Ark of the Covenant, if you remember, sat inside the most holy place or the holy of holies. And it was only one time in the year that the high priest was allowed to go in there, and it was separated by a four-inch thick curtain. Like there was all sorts of dividers, all sorts of burnt offerings and sacrifices and blood rituals to be done. But one time a year, on the Day of Atonement, the head honcho priest could go in and do the Super Bowl of all sacrifices, and it was completely to do with the mercy seat. And he would do it twice. He would go and he would sacrifice a bull and he'd bring the blood into the Holy of Holies and he'd sprinkle it on the mercy seat for the atonement of his own sin and his family. And then he'd go back out and he'd do it again with a goat and he'd bring the blood of the goat in and he'd sprinkle it again on the mercy seat in between the two cherubim, right on the, on, on the cover, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant for the sins of all the people. And then he would come back out of the Holy of Holies and he would transfer symbolically, he would play his hands on the scapegoat right on the scapegoat's head, and they would watch the scapegoat walk into the sunset, into the wilderness, because God is saying, your sins are gone. Very, very significant. And Leviticus 16 describes the atonement that happens in that ritual, and he says, forgiveness for all the sins of the people. And the tax collector knew that, and he knew he had no right being there. And that's exactly why he leaves justified. 
So this atonement piece, what ends up happening is, rather than God look down into the Holy of Holies and see the law of Moses in the Ark of the Covenant that we break, rather than look down and see the law, God looks down and sees sacrificial blood poured out to make atonement for those who would break the law. And the tax collector is asking for that. He's saying, see me as if I'm accepted. See me as if there's been a substitute for me. See me as somebody who has been brought near even though I'm far off. That's his prayer. It is powerful. He's saying, I am a lawbreaker. I have broken the law. There's no way I can uphold it. And it's crazy because the Pharisee misses the point of the, of the law. Romans 3 gets into all of this. But the point of the law is to show us we can't keep it. But the Pharisee's trying to keep it. <laughs> so he misses the entire point of the law. The point of the law is to show us that our kind of moving target of righteousness is always flawed. And God's isn't. But we'll never, ever meet it. We'll never be able to hit it. And the tax collector understood this because he lived it because he knew he was weak. He was honest with the fact that he, he, he is an extortioner. Like, like, he literally is. I mean, he is a thief. He, he does betray his own people. He knows that he's rotten. He knows where he's at on Saturday night. He knows what he's doing and what he's thinking behind closed doors when nobody else sees him. And he's honest about it, and the Pharisee isn't. And he's the one that leaves justified. So just understand the scandal in this. It's a very scandalous story because... The fact that the tax collector is the one that leaves justified from the temple where he shouldn't even be in the first place is not only counterintuitive, but it would have been an entire offense to the Pharisees because it would have been like, then why am I doing anything that I'm doing? Why do I bother going to the temple? Why do I bother fasting? Why do I bother giving? If that guy did none of those things and he's justified, then why am I doing any of it? And Jesus is just foreshadowing the work that he's about to do the final atoning work that he is about to accomplish so that we don't need the mercy seat sprinkled anymore because we have one final sacrifice that is sprinkled to cover all people who would come and say, I'm the sinner. Have mercy on me. Cover me. Put that lid of atonement over me because I need it because I cannot come at that standard God. And I think also the tax collector clearly knows, this, knows scripture. Like this tax collector knows the word. And that's what I love about it. Because to a Pharisee, the tax collectors didn't know, right? But he clearly knows something because he also nods to one of the most quoted verses in all of scripture. And it's in Exodus 34. And it's the time where God shows up and names himself and then says what he's like. So you want a resume. It's just like, what is God like? It's like, nobody knows. Nobody knows what God's like. Nobody knows God's name. Let's just all kind of like wander up the mountain and hope we get to the multi-faith room and the light shines bright on us for eternity. It's like, no, no. But God has repeatedly shown up and named himself. Like over human history, he's repeatedly shown up and said, this is my name. This is what I'm like. Come and know me. This is what he's done. Exodus 34, Yahweh, Yahweh. It's his name. We see it Lord, Lord in our English, but Yahweh, Yahweh, it's his personal name. Know me by that name. And here's what he says, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, rich in steadfast love. That's what God's like. And I think he quotes it. I think this is what he's remembering. He's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I forgot. Like, like he's merciful. Like this God is mercy. He's rich in love. He's rich in mercy. That's the God. That's this God. Oh, I'm, I'm such a sinner. Like I can't believe I forgot about how rich you are in mercy. If 
Ephesians 2 does the exact same thing. If you remember, the Apostle Paul, reflecting on the work of Christ, talking about us all being far off and being brought near. And here's what Paul says, Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. He brought us near. If he's the one that brings us near, we've done nothing to earn it. We also can do nothing to lose it. We don't even deserve to be at the party. Therefore, we can humbly be at the party. That's what the gospel does. And here's what's crazy, church. This is the only time in scripture where God is described as being rich in something. Like he, he is rich in other things, but he, his being, his very person is rich in mercy. Not justice, not forgiveness, not grace, not righteousness, not wrath, not judgment, but rich in mercy. It's like, what, what's God's name? Mercy. Being rich in mercy is who he is. And the tax collector knows that. He gets that. Because he knows he can't get it. He can't go after it and, and earn it. But he also knows he can't lose it. So if there's any hope for him, any hope at all, it has to be wrapped up in the person and character and nature of this God. It has to be. It's the only way that that standard will be reached and, and, and it will actually be hit and righteousness will be achieved. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, he writes this about mercy. Listen to this. God is rich in mercy. God is not tight-fisted with mercy, but open-handed, not frugal, but lavish, not poor, but rich. Listen to this, church. It means that the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. It means how mercy is not calculating, but it's ca- and cautious like ours. It's unrestrained. It's flood-like. It's sweeping. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing that he loves most to work with. It means that our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on that day when we stand before him quietly and unhurriedly that we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. How does God feel about you right now? Like, like, take, like take your week. Like, take stock on your week. Like, how does he feel about you right now? And what do you base it on? Your devos? How many prayers you said? How many times you shared the gospel this week? Church, the thing is, when we understand that he is rich in mercy, we get to go and do all of those things because we get to go play with him. Like we get to go run around in the playground. We get to go share the gospel. We get to give. We get to get into the word. We get to pray. That's the posture of the tax collector in here. The posture of the Pharisee is like, if only... If only I did more of that this week, God, then you would, then I'd be forgiven. Then you'd love me again. Then I'd feel loved. I'd feel known. The tax collector understands that he's fully known, (laughs) but fully loved. He's fully forgiven. And he's fully accepted. He's fully approved. And he gets to go and play around in the richness of God's mercy. That he gets to work from his acceptance in God because he's been mercy seated. He doesn't go and work for the acceptance of God. So listen, this week, some of you, you've been told lies. You've told yourself lies about what makes you worthy and what makes you accepted, what approves you before God. And today, especially as we take communion, it's a reminder that that has already been done. 
that you're already named, you're already fully known, that the darkest things that no one knows about in the private corners of your heart, the fears and the insecurities and the anger and the bitterness that you have about yourself, that the richness of God's mercy has already met you there. Church, it changes everything. The paradox of this mercy is that God doesn't love you any less when you fail, but he also doesn't love you more when you succeed. Now we're free. You see the freedom in that? That now we get to just go? Like now we get to go live? We get to fail sometimes. We get to succeed other times. But living happens in between both of those things. That we get to live free. We get to live fully known, fully accepted, fully loved. So church, those of us that get to experience God's mercy are those of us that know we don't deserve it and that we can't earn it and that we can't lose it. That's the gospel. And the Pharisee misses that. And many, many of us miss this. And many people that we cross paths with day to day, week, week in and week out, miss this. So here's where we have to check our heart and be very careful. Because if you find yourself thinking or saying, how could someone struggle with that? As if your sin makes sense and theirs doesn't, then you've wandered outside of mercy. If you find yourself pointing to your own failures and your own missing the mark and your own sin and your own not producing and doing enough fruitful things as reasons why God should just move on without you and not love you, you've stepped outside of mercy. You've forgotten this. The moment that we think we've earned God's grace and mercy is the same moment that we've actually stepped outside of it. The moment that we actually think we can lose it is the moment that we've stepped outside of it. That's why the saying you've, you know, whatever it is, like you've stepped outside of grace or you've lost, you know, what is it? No, you don't know? Good. All right. Yeah, thank you. Fallen from grace. You can't fall from grace. See, that's where we're the church. We're a community, baby. You can't fall from grace. That's the nature of grace. And Paul makes that point in Romans. And the only way that you can actually fall away from grace is by justifying yourself with another means. That's what's crazy about this. That's what's so scandalous about this gospel. And I love, I just love, this is where we'll wrap up. I love, love, love when Jesus calls Matthew to come and follow him and be his disciple. Remember what Matthew is? What is he? He's a tax collector. And then he goes right to Matthew's house with all of his homies and he eats. He has a barbecue with Matthew. And he's reclining, he's drinking red stripe and eating jerk chicken with Matthew and his buddies. They're hanging out. And the Pharisees are like, what is he doing? Like, doesn't he know what Matthew has done? Like, like, doesn't he know he's a tax collector? Hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners. Like, doesn't Jesus know that? And the Pharisees are just, they're mind blown. They can't believe that a rabbi especially one that would claim to be the Messiah, is hanging out and associating with Matthew and his buddies. And Jesus turns to them and says, those who are well don't need a doctor, but it's those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. That's already pretty Jesus-y. Like he literally tells the Pharisees, go and learn something. They already think they know it, right? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the only one able to draw us near, 
the only one that matters by declaring us right, by declaring us loved, by declaring us approved and accepted. He is the one who is rich in mercy. And so what we'll do now is we're, we're, we're going to worship, we're going to respond to this mercy. We're going to respond to the richness of this. And then we're going to take communion. Symbols of what has been done, the lengths that God has gone to make this mercy and this grace available to you and I, the sinners. And here's what I want to keep in our mind as we do that. As we respond, as we worship, as we take communion. Hebrews 4 is a beautiful passage about what this looks like. And the author of Hebrews says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? So that we may receive mercy in our time of need. Notice that the Pharisee walks into the the temple with swagger. The tax collector approaches because he's in desperate need of mercy. But because of Christ, we can walk into the throne room, to come to the throne of grace with confidence, not because of us. Not confidence because of what we've done. Not despair because of what we haven't. But we can come to the throne of grace confident because we've been mercy seated. Because the mercy and the richness of his grace has come at us. And second, we have to remember, church, that we have a gospel that does cover sin. We do. Amen. But we only have a gospel that covers sin that we uncover. And so this is a moment where we get to come and respond to the richness of mercy and be fully known. Nothing left to hide. Nothing nothing that we can bring except to the cross that we cling, right? Empty hands, empty pockets, just coming with all of our failures, with this week, whatever this week held for you, with our uncertain future, because there's so many things uncertain that we get to come and we get to uncover all of that because we have nothing left to hide. We have nothing else to lose because we've got everything in Christ because of the richness of his mercy. Let me pray for us. Father, You're self-sufficient. You have all that you need. Yet you came after us. You came to us that you named yourself, that you made yourself knowable because you're rich in mercy. That that is who you are. That that is your name. We thank you, Father, that your son was sent full of that. Just mercy in flesh. The word of truth in fleshed. We just pray that you would apply it to our heart today, Spirit. That we would understand the radical nature of this grace. The radical nature of this mercy that is you. That everything that happened this week, that everything is coming in this coming week, that we would just come and uncover it all. Just give it to you freely and fully. Because Lord, you already know. You're already there. And we're already loved. We ask that you would apply this to our heart and mind. And that we would be different because of it. That you would show us who we're called to be because of who you are and who you call us to be. We love you and we need you so, so much. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.